Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, you're listening to the Future of Media Explained podcast with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tabet. And this week, we're learning about making a newsletter business profitable. Joining me today to talk about newsletters is Press Gazette's Associate Editor for Interviews and Investigations, Will Turnbull. Hi, Will. Hi, Charlotte. So as you discussed with your interviewee for today, newsletters have been around a long time now, but have been a particularly booming business for the past couple of years. That'd be fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think they've there's been a lot of excitement around newsletters for at least around the pandemic, they seem to be to really come into vogue despite being around for many years before then. And now I think maybe there are questions about whether excitement may have peaked. But yeah, that's and that's one of the one of the many questions that I had for my interviewee today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of that ourselves at Press Gazette, haven't we? We've had a daily email newsletter for a long time, many years, but over the past year in particular, we started having good success with sponsorships, as I know others have as well. And often, Press Gazette, we've, in interviews, we've heard about how newsletters are often successful when they build a personal relationship with the audience. And a couple of years ago, we took that on board ourselves and started writing what's almost a mini leader column to top the newsletter each day, whether that's by Dom or me or you and your US newsletter. And that seems to work well for engagement as well. On a personal level, do you enjoy reading newsletters and do you have any favourites? I read lots and I'd say my favourites are, or I'd say the most, one of the most important ones for me when I was covering North America for Press Gazette was Sarah Fisher's weekly Axios newsletter. I think that's really good. Brian Stelter's Reliable Sources, again, really helpful and a lot in there and just a good read. And then now I'm back in the UK just for fun. I love Pop Bitch as a newsletter and I recommend it to lots of people. I enjoy Press Gazette's newsletters, of course, and other New Statesman Media Group newsletters. I think they're of a very high standard. I really like writing the US newsletter. That's really fun. And I think it's a good opportunity to just show a little bit of your own personality, even if you're keeping it reasonably straight. And I think the Politico London Playbook newsletter has been and remains a very good way of just Get making sure you're on top of the latest political news and the biggest news stories in the UK without necessarily having to read into detail on every little story. 
What are your favourites? I was going to say Popvich as well because I, it always amuses me on a Thursday when someone sends a screenshot in the Fresh Gazette WhatsApp, even though I'm pretty sure we all subscribe. Mm. And that always gets us talking. Quite like the tortoise ones as well. Again, it's a bit like like you said, you don't have to feel like you've, you're constantly reading stuff. But if you just read this one thing, then you've, you're really well on, on board with one particular thing. Mm. So anyway, well, let's cut to the chase. Why don't you tell me who you spoke to this week so we understand why we're on about newsletters? Uh, yes, so I spoke to Janice Min, who is a bigwig of the American journalism industry, specifically entertainment journalism. She started out at People magazine, which she hadn't actually read before she joined. So she was an accidental showbiz journalist who then became an editorial newsroom leader. So she went on to lead Us Weekly. And then she later took over The Hollywood Reporter after moving over to the west coast of America from from New York, where she was based before. And I think the general consensus is that she turned it from a reasonably dull Hollywood trade title, which doesn't sound like there should be any such thing, but I think there was, into a glamorous magazine and a glamorous and successful magazine. Now she is running a small-ish newsletter business called Ankler Media, which was founded as the Ankler a Substack-based newsletter in 2017. She got involved earlier this year. She joined the journalist behind that newsletter called Richard Rushfield. And together with Janice leading, they are turning it into a newsletter-based business. So now, in addition to the flagship Ankler newsletter, they've got several other offshoot mini-brands and a podcast as well. She is a high-profile US media executive who has gone, okay, I've done well with legacy media, as it's known in the US, and now I want to go all into newsletters and turn this into a big business. It's still quite small at the moment, but I think it's got some really interesting momentum. It's raised quite a bit of money, and the reason for the timing was, just as a glimpse behind the curtain, a PR got in touch with me, as these things often happen, and said, you should interview Janice Min. She's got really interesting background. Also, Ankler Media, its revenues are in the low millions now, and it's profitable. So I thought, yeah, that sounds like an interesting story, and also an interesting business to get on top of while it is still reasonably small. Yeah, sounds like a really good success story. And it's interesting that they're still they're using Substack as well, because that's been part of this massive boom that we've seen, and lots of writers leaving legacy titles to go off on their own using Substack. Mm. So, Will, let's get into it. Do you want to introduce your interview with Janice for us? Yes. And I should say as well that Janice joined me at 8am US time or Los Angeles time. And I complimented her on how early it was that we were talking. And she said, what do you mean? It's the middle of the morning. Turns out she wakes up at 5.30, which is, I told her, very American. I think, I think I've cut that bit out of the edit but that interested me nonetheless. So after that little bit of an intro, I asked her just to start off, since she's very well known in the US, but not necessarily that well known to our UK audience, I asked her to give us a potted history of her career to date. I am a longtime journalist and editor here in the United States. You probably know some of my publications that I helmed, and I was at Time Inc., which was a storied magazine company here for a long time. And I was there in my 20s and early 30s. And then I became the editor-in-chief of this 
tired, failing rag called Us Weekly that was losing tons of money. And I was a very unknown quantity then. And I became its editor-in-chief. And it became then this sort of massive decade-defining publication in the United States covering celebrity. And it was named let's see, performer of the decade by this, you know, industry trade. It was became probably the most, if not one of the most successful publications of that decade. And then after that, I lived in New York. I went to, um, then came to Los Angeles and to try to bring back to life something called the Hollywood Reporter, which was a daily trade newspaper covering entertainment. That became a pretty big success. And that's probably what most people know me best for. Oversaw Billboard, which is a music publication. And now I have a newsletter publication, because everybody needs a newsletter, called The Ankler, which is, I'll just tell you what the New York Times has called it. They've called it a buzzy newsletter circulated among Hollywood's C-suites. Lots more questions about The Ankler. Just taking a little step back, I wondered, growing up, did you always want to be a celebrity journalist? How did you get into it to begin with? No, no. I think that I'm a, I was like studious, good good student, cared a lot about history and politics. And what really liked media, always wanted to be a journalist for sure, and worked on my junior high newspaper, worked on my high school newspaper, decided I grew up in Colorado, which is middle of the country, United States. And I decided if I'm going to do this journalism thing, I need to be in New York. And so I applied to Columbia University in New York and went there for college, was lucky enough to get in, got a master's there in journalism. My first job was working at a newspaper in the suburbs of New York City, covering like crime and local reporting. And I worked Tuesday through Saturday, 2 to 10 p.m. I'll never forget that. And then I decided, God, I want—I really need to work back in New York City, applied for a ton of jobs. And one of them that called me was People Magazine. I had never bought, I'd never read People Magazine in my life. Did you tell I, them that? I did, did not. You you'd read it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. So I went out to the grocery and I bought some, I bought a People Magazine and maybe I bought a few, read them. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I can do this. And and then that's how I got started in magazines and publishing. And just one thing led to another. And that's how I ended up with the jobs I did. Looking back now, and having been based in Los Angeles for a while now, do you think the US media is too New York centric? Huh. I mean, for sure. Like it's, I think when you live in New York City, it is such a, it's like this hot house of media gossip. It really does feel, and I think that I'm sure all your audience will knows and laughs, but yet is part of this idea that media loves to read and consume information about media. And and so it has this big life of its own. And I think it's, it would be wrong to presume that doesn't somehow influence the sort of myopic way that sometimes stories are covered or the approach. And but like all industries, it has a center. And that was the center for a really long time. And what's interesting coming out to Los Angeles to do The Hollywood Reporter is that Los Angeles, I would say, you know, in, in New York, the two dominant industries when I lived there, and some could argue otherwise, but I would say it was media and Wall Street. And for Los Angeles, the dominant industry has been entertainment. And even though I do not think it's the largest employer or anything by far, but it's certainly the one that casts the largest shadow over the city. But it never really had its kind of accompanying media to cover that industry. And the media just didn't have that kind of sense of camaraderie or shared culture of media that if you worked 
in New York City in media you you had. And so it, to me, when I came out and did The Hollywood Reporter, it seemed like a big opportunity to, and this reveals my own bias, but to do a, so, a sort of East Coast style publication for the West Coast. And, mm-hmm. and it ended up being really successful, sort of translating this, not like this sort of undercovered industry for bringing the intelligence and insight around that industry to a much wider audience. And we ended up becoming a pretty big read nationwide. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about how the Hollywood Reporter changed under your leadership? Sure. It had been publishing as a daily trade paper when I joined. And it was not a successful daily trade paper. It was not doing well. And there had been rounds and rounds of layoffs. And so then private money bought the Hollywood Reporter and Billboard and a bunch of ad week and some other trade titles. And they asked me to come at first start with the Hollywood Reporter to make it over. And they had this idea. I really didn't have many. I didn't really have guidance other than it should be, it should be yeah, Richard Beckman was the CEO who hired me and he was, he's British and he it's like, it should be fabulous. You know, just need, it should be something that people who read The Economist love, but who people who also love, I don't know, I, he had all sorts of analogies. But basically, he wanted it to be something like compelling and urgent and glamorous. And so I was like, okay, let's, we can do this. And it, so I came, there was a sort of very demoralized trade staff covering Hollywood. And when you covered Hollywood, then I would say the relationship with the trade press was really lopsided in that the studios and the studios for your audience, that means like Warner Brothers, Sony, Paramount, all these legacy brands, you know, a title card before you watch your movie or TV shows. They really, because they were the primary advertiser, the sole financial support for these trades, they carried a lot of leverage, which often meant that the, that they could control the content of what was being published. And, and the end result, I think is probably you and all your audience knows is that you end up your content ends up getting badly diluted and it doesn't become better <laughs> for sure. And, and so it was bringing this ethos into the ecosystem of we need to put the audience first and we need to do news first. And, and I was a big believer that like you do great things and the audience comes and then you like flip the, you flip the script and you have the leverage over any advertiser. And one of the things we also did was we broadened the audience and broadened the content mix to not make studio advertising the sole basis of income. And so there was automotive, there was luxury, there was airline, like to be able to create this environment that capitalized on the best of the kind of glossy appeal of Hollywood that the trades had never quite been able to latch onto. But that as having been in New York media, I knew the allure and the mystique of what Hollywood was and how people here didn't quite appreciate that. I feel like maybe needed an outsider to come in and harness that. Yeah. So tell us about the Ankler. Okay. So there was a person, word of mouth is really underrated. (laughs) I think word of mouth is like the greatest way to hear about something or grow something. And so there was someone pretty senior in town who had, this was probably around 2017, maybe 2018 had sent me a note. So have you seen this newsletter? It's called the Ankler. And it's this like the smartest thing I've ever read about entertainment. And I trust this person enormously. And I checked it out and I'm like, oh my God, this is great. And it was by this journalist who I knew a little bit named Richard Rushfield. And Richard had worked at BuzzFeed and the Los Angeles Times and Vanity Fair covering entertainment. And what was like, what was 
just stunning about it. And it shouldn't sound that revolutionary. And I know like in the UK, you have a really rigorous press. But what Richard was doing was saying all those things that people would not say out loud or weren't saying in the media and harnessing the conversation tapping into the private conversations around town. It was so smart. And I began to talk to Richard about it. And I approached him and I just said, to me, it just seemed, and let me back up a little. There was a, I think around 2018, 2019, I might have the day, the year off a little bit. There there was someone here who bought the Hollywood Reporter after Mm -hmm. I'd left. And so then it consolidated all the ownership of the entertainment trade press already. They consolidated all the trade press under one owner. And to me, it represented an opportunity both in editorial voice to do something different, but also in advertising that people will want, that people would want an option in terms of sponsorship, where to put their money. And because it, to me, it seemed like they, that those other trade titles would be consolidating. And so I approached Richard and I said, do you want to try to do something bigger with this? And he's like, sure. Yeah. Okay. And then Richard's a very much like a writer and he was like, but how do we do this? And so then we put together a business plan. We were trying to figure out how we raise some money to do it. We talked to some media partners about doing this. It's been reported now, so I feel fine saying like one of the media partners was The Information, which is a Silicon Valley outlet out here. And ultimately, we, in the twists and turns of media, Richard was publishing on Substack, which I think readers, some of your audience in the UK knows, a newsletter publishing platform. And the, Hamish McKenzie, one of the founders of Substack, heard that we were trying to build this thing. He put us in touch first with, let's say, the venture capitalist, Mark Andreessen, who is an investor in Substack. And then, but then he also, the, uh, the, the most meaningful thing he did was put us in touch with Y Combinator, which is a, this sort of in the United States, like the premier seed accelerator of Silicon Valley. And it's very rare that they're interested in media. They had, were the ones who, there was the birthplace of Substack, of Reddit, of The Athletic, which sold to the New York Times for $550 million. But in, on a much larger scale, they were the birthplace of Airbnb, DoorDash, Coinbase, Dropbox, you know. Yeah, so it's a great like, endorsement. So Yeah. Yeah. So many things. And so Y Combinator asked us to apply. Like they seemed to like the idea of the Ankler. And, and we, so we applied, we're like, are we going to get into this? And do we want to do this? And we don't really think of ourselves as we thought it was going to be this hoodie wearing tech bro crowd and not like media people. And, but we had a great time. We got in, we had a great time, learned a lot. And I think one of the things that was so helpful about them was that they really help you. They will no, they don't help you. They tell you to, um, in order to raise money, like how you simplify your message around media. And it just all boils down into one slide <laughs> when you're fundraising, one slide with four or five bullet points and about your business. And, and I think another part of what they do is they, um, you know, and these things, these are the kind of things that like is a long time magazine person make, made me like a little crazy. Don't spend too much time making your materials look good because then people are going to think you're not working hard. I'm like, wait, but it has to look good. And the other thing that they were really emphatic about was like, it's okay to launch a million times if you just put stuff out there and if it doesn't work, you pull it back. And so that kind of like perfectionist in me was like, I had my thoughts challenged by this other way of doing things. And so anyway, but it was, so they encourage you to grow as quickly as you can during 
and Y Combinator. It's a three-month program. And we grew very fast during that time, added some other voices into the mix with Richard. And then we were able to then raise money. It was great. Like we raised money at a, uh, I think I'm okay saying this one, Richard's Ankler had a million dollar valuation before we entered Y Combinator. And when we raised money, Three and a half months later, three months later, we were at a $20 million valuation and we raised one and a half million dollars. Um, so mm-hmm. small amounts like these are, we're not Adam Newman, apparently, but we, you know, for media, that was a nice little seed round for us to keep going. And then the ultimate goal is to grow enough to raise, to get to our Series A round. The economy is not in, working in our favor at the moment, but, but that's the, that would be the n- next step. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are, but the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical, and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search... Audio long reads from the New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. How are things going in terms of subscribers, revenues, profitability? It's great. We're profitable. I'm not like, I don't think anyone's buying a yacht off our profits <laughs> at all or the world's saddest yacht or maybe a picture of a yacht. We've been really conscious about managing costs. And I think this is where a media typically gets ahead of itself that so we're trying to we're trying to scale slowly but we've been able to we've been able to grow pretty fast with our small allotment of money and we let's see as of today we're at about 30,000 subscribers and let's see we've more than doubled our number of subscribers and we've grown subscription revenue more than three times also. So it's going really well and and so we have a really nice trajectory. I think we have in you know all what all anyone wants to see when you're raising money is your chart, your growth chart where you have what they call like the hockey stick that where it goes like up and we have a hockey stick that maybe isn't at a it's not at a it's not straight up but it's probably at a nice 85 degree angle going up. <laughs> so we're really happy with that. I think we're, we've also had a lot of success with our podcasts and we've had, I think about 800,000 downloads for this year off our podcasts. And so we spun that up out of thin air and, and then we're going to be getting into events, some of which we, we haven't quite baked yet, but we'll hopefully make some announcements around those soon. And then what's nice is we've had sponsorship come in. And this was something that didn't really exist for Richard on the Ankler before we have, um, 
you know, we'll be into the seven figures on sponsorship this year. And some of that is that the audience of the Angler is so rarefied. It's you truly have, I wish I could share with you some of the names who subscribe, but you really have the tippy top people of entertainment subscribing. And that's a pretty great audience. It's a hard audience to reach and a pretty desirable audience to reach. So we have the sponsorship is a nice bonus. Yeah. And how much does it cost to subscribe? It's $149 a year for an annual sponsorship and $17 a month if you want to go monthly. And we've done no subscription marketing. This is probably one of these things we want to go into next. We need to figure out... Yes, our word of mouth is great. Yes, it's great to convert people off our free list, but we probably need like maybe a more disciplined effort than crossing our fingers every time we send a story out. So I think that's probably something we'll tackle, start to tackle in the next few months. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive figure, 30,000 with without doing that so far. So yeah, thank yeah you. it's promising. How many staff do you have? Huh, we have no staff. We have, we have, there are three full-time editorial employees, including me and Richard. And and then we have a CRO who oversees our, our ad sales. So it's, it is a whopping four-person full-time staff at the moment. We have people who we, I feel really fortunate that we've been able to bring in voices who would like to work with the Angler on a contributing basis. And so one of them is this person, Sean McNulty, who does this newsletter called The Wake Up, which is fantastic. And I hope all your audience signs up for it. It's a morning, basically, it's really smart morning aggregator of news around entertainment and media with analysis that he throws in around around certain things like movie marketing and or the lack of marketing and streaming and things like that that are important to the business. So Sean has been a great find. He's also a great podcast host with us and what probably one of the most knowledgeable people about the business. There's someone who maybe some of your audience might be familiar with, who goes, who calls himself entertainment strategy guy, who used to be a, used to work in business and strategy at, let's just say Hollywood entities that you would know of and chooses to remain anonymous because of that. But he, entertainment has become increasingly a data-driven business and for better or worse, the algorithm is driving where we go. And he's been really great about diving into the data and what has become like a little bit of a black box in terms of information about what people get about their shows and television, television and movies that stream. And I think that used to be that ratings, performance of a movie or TV show was was done by third party reporting. And now it's more like what the streamers would like to tell you about minutes watched, about number of millions and millions of people who watched maybe two minutes, 30 seconds of something they put on air. So anyway, he's been great about demystifying some of the logic around numbers. Mm. And yeah, lots of other great voices. Yeah, I was going to ask, what sort of topics do you cover regularly? What are the what are your biggest hitting stories? I'll give you an example. So I, you know, one of the things we say a lot is people don't want more information, they would like better information. And one of the things we've been able to, I, one of the things I'm really proud of is I feel like we've been able to provide better information. And so for example, we had a series this week that in the past week called the American viewer. And that's been this detailed look at at the audience in America, five parts from Entertainment Strategy Guy, looking at the demographics of the, the, the misconceptions by people who make entertainment about the American audience. And I think one of the perils of media 
particularly out here, is, you know, we all tend to live in our own bubbles. And entertainment, the entertainment industry certainly is no different. And in one of Entertainment Strategy Guy's pieces, he says, this is an industry of people who live behind gates. Everyone has a gated house who live behind gates and work behind gates. All the studio lots are like fortresses and that you sort of lose touch with who the consumer is. And so he he became really consumed by this idea that that entertainment is increasingly programming to niches and not doing what he advocates as like broad popular content. And and so he really dived into some surprising statistics about like how, whether you agree with it or not, how religious America is, you know, how most Americans don't actually care at all about politics, even though loud voices from the left and right would lead you to believe that how few people use Twitter, the the sort of opportunity in people over 50 who undersubscribe to streaming services to make that a growth area still. That kind of understanding of the industry something that we believe has actual value to the audience and people respond very well to. And and then I'll give you a sort of more digestible example, which is Richard wrote a column during the whole Harry Styles. <laughs> I think people in England have heard of him. The whole Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde, don't worry, darling, press debacle. And the sort of ridiculousness of did... Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine at the Venice Film Festival or not, like that kind of stuff. He I mean, he just totally unpacked that whole thing and talked about like how the coverage of Olivia Wilde, the director of Don't Worry Darling, and the one in the relationship with Harry Styles was just sort of part of this long narrative arc of the treatment of female directors in Hollywood and also by the Holly- traditional Hollywood trade press. And that did that story did perform great for us. And another one that performed great for us was the Emmy Awards, which are the awards for television here just happened in the last week. And Richard wrote under this headline, like, who are the Emmys even for? They had very low ratings, but this was even before the ratings came out. And he did a Google Trends map showing the Google searches for Monday Night Football, which aired against the Emmys and the Emmys. And it was overwhelmingly everyone searching for Monday Night Football, which ended up with three times the ratings and just that disconnect between what Hollywood thinks is important and what the rest of the country is actually thinking about and watching. In your career previously, you've you've worked for some really big publications and ones that needed rescuing to an extent. But I just wondered how different it feels to be working on a publication that's come up from nothing. Is that daunting to to be doing that rather than working yeah. on a very established brand that people I mean, have heard of? It definitely it's definitely different. It's also been super gratifying to see how you can just literally spin something up almost out of nothing. Richard had a presence, but it was a very small audience. And to see it become something of significance is really fascinating and great. And but to see how you can create a brand from the ground up, it's great. It's all largely been rescue projects before and to do it built by hand has been different, but fantastic. Okay. And my final question, so I've asked this of a lot of people who are in the newsletter world and business, but they've been around for ages, haven't they? What is it about the last couple of years? Why are they all of a sudden so exciting? Why are people in the media so excited about them? And what does the future look like for newsletters? It's interesting. Richard was the one who really made me understand newsletters better, that people like that direct relationship of just, if you can tap into the voice and and really feel like you have a personal relationship with the reader. And like, it, it is, I can't quite... I'm not going to explain it well, but like when we're creating the content for the Ankler, we know exactly who it's going to. We know who's on the reader list. We know 
We know who's reading it. We know what they like. We know what they don't like. It's in many ways an algorithm of its own. You begin serving the audience because you know them so well. Like at the Hollywood Reporter, which was massive, when you have a 23 million unique user audience, you're you're just doing a lot of stuff and a lot and getting audience from everywhere. But this is just um, really speaking di- directly to your in a way that changes the tenor of what you do. Thanks for that, Will. And thanks to Janice for calling in from LA doing a podcast at ATM. Does still feel early to me, even if she insists it's mid-morning. So, Will, what was your big takeaway that you'd like to share? Well, I think probably the headline from it is that Ankler Media, this small, growing newsletter business, has 30,000 subscribers. So I think that's a lot. And it shows that there's a lot of potential. And it may be a fun subject area that they're covering here, Hollywood, but that's it's pretty niche. So getting 30,000 subscribers off the bat without, as she said, without doing any marketing around it, I think is really impressive. And so I'd say takeaway one just for the future of Ankler is it looks like a business to watch and I will be watching it as will our US reporter Bron Maher, I'm sure. So Will, I must ask, as the New York Times has recently asked in a feature, are we past peak newsletter? Ah. Uh, expert you've expertly stolen my research there <laughs> no not really that is a good question are we past peak newsletter charlotte my instinct is no i'm interested to know your instinct i agree with you i think there's still a lot of new and exciting things happening and yeah. enough growth it doesn't feel like we're down the other side yet yeah no i agree and I think especially not for Ankler Media, I think there's a lot more to come from them. And just listening to Janice speaking about the pros of newsletters, I just think, yeah, I think there's a lot more to come here editorially, but also from the business side. She spoke about, she didn't want to obviously speak about who her readers are. If she knows that she's being read by, or that Ankler Media and the Ankler are being read by C-suites in Hollywood, And that's really powerful to know exactly who those readers are. If you think about, if someone asks us Press Gazette, who's reading Press Gazette, we're obviously not going to tell them. But if we talk between ourselves about who's reading on the website, we've, it's really just a bit of a guess a lot of the time, isn't it? And with newsletters, you don't have to guess so much. You know who's subscribing, you know who's regularly reading it. And that's obviously a powerful tool if you can say we've got these really high profile people that open our newsletters and read our newsletters and click on our links. That's obviously a useful tool for the commercial side of the business as well, which I think is where we've seen some success and obviously where the Ankler Media is seeing some success as well. So as she said, sponsorship revenues are going to top a million dollars this year. I think she said seven figures, so it could potentially be well over a million dollars. So yeah, I think it's really interesting and it's made me feel positive about newsletters and just got me excited about our own newsletters and building them up. Yeah, you've left me feeling very excited as well. And I, I hope it's the same for all of our listeners. So thank you very much, Will. Thank you, Charlotte. You've been listening to Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit, Press Gazette associate editor for interviews and investigations, Will Turbel. Thanks to our guest, Janice Min, and our producer, Adrian Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode and want to find out more about newsletters and other topics, please go to pressgazette.co.uk. And if you like the podcast, please like, review, subscribe, and tell a friend.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.